0: All right. Well, we're in our class on corporate worship. And one of the great things about being a church restart is we have to go back to the very foundations of what we do and think about not only the philosophy that undergirds what we do, but also the theological foundation for that. And uh, that's what we've been doing in this class. So we've worked from very basic concepts of like what is the gospel and what is the hope that we have as Christians, um, all, all the way to this new identity as a royal priesthood and as the family of God. Last week, we wrapped up our considerations of children in their involvement in worship. And today we're going to consider the, the incorporation of men and women into corporate worship. Um, so I know that this is a really debated Issue this idea of men and women in, in roles in the home and church in society, and it's it's becoming I think a, another big thing to talk about in our Baptist world. Um, I know that that. Twitter is not real life, but it is in a way, because you see these uh, influential people in our world talking about these things in that public way and stirring up conversation. Uh, so, so even yesterday, there, were some, there was this huge like explosion of things on, on social media about men and women in the church. And so I think we've got to work hard to think carefully about these things. And... Um, the way that I want to present it is going to be, uh, I, I think, acceptable and biblical, but also reframing it just a little bit from the, the common categories that we have. So as we look at the discussion of the role of men and women in the church and home and in the public, it's really a complex debate and discussion that's been going on for a long time and there there are a lot of factors that go into this but in the end in our world and in the Christian world there are really two groups at different ends of the spectrum that one group is labeled egalitarian and the other group is labeled complementarian and and it seems like those are the controlling groups in the discussion of all things related to gender and life in the home and church in public. And so on the one side, you have a, I, I forget their exact title, but it's like so, some, you know, council of biblical egalitarians or something like that. And then on the other side, you have the council for biblical manhood and womanhood. And and you get these two opposing groups that start to go back and forth. and And I don't know that, these categories are helpful categories for us to operate in. Um, and I, I know that in our world, in conservative Christianity, this label of complementarian is the one that is really tied into, though, though I think this, what, what that does is it creates an identity politic way of going about this that obscures more than it reveals. And so this, this complicates matters Because labels of egalitarian or complementarian fail to accurately reflect the undergirding commitments that either of these groups have. And the reality is it's really varied within it. You could talk to someone who identifies as an egalitarian who's arrived at their position because they really like the kind of political, cultural, feminist movement and want to destroy any category of gender in in any difference between men and women. And they they perhaps deny the the authority and the inspiration of scripture. And that gets all wrapped up in what it means to be an egalitarian. But then you might have someone else who identifies as an egalitarian that is committed to the authority and inspiration of the scriptures and, and says that we've arrived at our position that, that women can be pastors or, or whatever that egalitarian bent might be based on careful exegetical work in the text and using hermeneutical principles that are generally sound. And, and they get categorized with these egalitarians as well, even though that person who affirms female pastors would have way more in common with a complementarian who doesn't affirm female pastors because they hold to that underwriting belief in the authority and inspiration of the Bible. And so these categories are not helpful. They, they put like every th- all the eggs in one basket on either side, and there's no distinction that we can make. And then what happens is there are individuals on either side who are trying to navigate a way forward biblically and faithfully, and they can't ever communicate with someone on the other side because they're automatically ejected from their world. Uh, so I, the things that I'm about to say, I think if the, if the larger you know, like complementarian group heard it, it it's not going to be very accepted because it starts to use language outside of the camp. So I'll just say that out there. Though I, I think it's more helpful. Um, In addition to the concealment of motivation or underlying commitments, I found that these labels don't even communicate what's meant by the position. So on the other side, on the complementarian side, for instance, there's a division between broad and narrow complementarians, with broad complementarians making broad application of, of their perspective, not just to the home or to the church, but to all of society, and narrow complementarians apply, you know, certain principles narrowly just to the, the home or something like that. But even that language is super confusing because if you hear that someone's broad in their perspective, you might think, oh, they're more, you know, open to other opinions. Well, in this case, that's the opposite. In this case, narrow complementarians or sometimes referred to as soft complementarians are perhaps more open to other perspectives. So, so the, the terms used to categorize people, I think, are just... Really not helpful. A final concern with framing the gender debate in terms of egalitarian versus complementarian is that both groups enter the debate in terms of looking at men and women in a power dynamic everything's talked about in terms of a, a power relationship, which is, the, which is ironically the exact thing that conservatives are pushing against in the look at racial conversations and, and why this idea of Marxism and critical race theory are so clearly rejected by, by the group that would also identify as complementarians. But I think that schema is then imported on men and women and the whole dynamic is who has authority roles, and who has power in a relationship. But I don't think that's the way that the Bible talks about these things. In fact, I think looking at relationships in that way fails to deal with what Jesus talks about authority and power, where he says not to exercise authority as the Gentiles do, and he provides a new way forward. And so we get into, because we look at it clear, just plainly in terms of power dynamics, we start using terms like leadership and authority when Jesus really threw those terms out the window and used terms of sacrifice. Um, So I know that there's this reframing of it, you know, leadership in particular to be modified with servant. So servant leadership. But the way that Jesus talks about it is that it's slave mode of being. It's full sacrifice And when we start to talk about leadership in this way, I think we mirror the apostles who were vying for authority in the kingdom more than Jesus who who turned that on its head. So for those reasons, I think that we need to set aside these identity politics of complementarian on the one side or egalitarian on the other side. And I think one representation of a a really good attempt at that is a little book by a Named Michelle Lee Barnwell called Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian. And if, if this is something that really interests you, um, first of all, I would just say, per, if this is the thing that really gets your, your motor running, is that the, the right phrase, or it really drives you, this is what the itch you're always scratching, I'd suggest that you're probably um, spending too much time thinking about this one issue in that there are larger biblical theological issues that will point you in the right direction outside of, of looking at this issue by itself, but I think she does a good job in reframing the discussion from one of power dynamics to, to the biblical language in the way that Jesus and, and Paul carried the discussion forward. So that's, that's the way we're going to approach it. Um, I, I have here listed eight points that I think are helpful for framing this study, uh, by a, a couple, Andreas and Margaret Kostenberger. This is the guy that I'm studying with at Midwestern, and and I think generally what they have to say is helpful, though so they're operating within this complementarian versus egalitarian framework in in. Um, are often talking in terms of role instead of manner, where I want to talk about the manner in which men operate and the manner in which women operate rather than the roles to which they are assigned. I think that's the more biblical language. However, I'm drawing on them for these eight points because I think they at least introduce ideas that are helpful for us as we go here. And any, anything that I would quibble with, I have in a footnote there. Uh, so you can, I guess, pursue that if you're really interested in. Men and women, number one, are created in God's image to be partners on mission for God. Scripture consistently reveals a pattern of male leadership in the home and church. Women are complementary partners, confidants, and advisors. And there I I just note that this this language of men consistently being in a pattern of leadership, I, I want to say yes, but Jesus redefines it. And I think when we hear that word leadership, We are thinking in our modern-day culture, business executive sort of terms. And and that's not how I want you to hear leadership. I want you to hear leadership in Jesus' way of talking about leadership. So if when I say men being a, a leader in your home, if that looks like to you that um, it just means that you're setting the agenda for the day and telling your wife what to do. That's not the kind of leadership Jesus modeled for us. His was one of sacrifice and service. And and what's interesting is that Jesus more effectively accomplishes the setting of an agenda through just straight-up self-giving instead of commanding. And, And over and over again, you see Jesus changing the entire group dynamic through what we would say is really strong leadership, but it doesn't evidence itself through CEO kind of leadership. Uh, so if you think of Jesus with the disciples, this example in John 13, when they're all together, in, in how does Jesus set the whole conversation? Well, he does it through an act of sacrifice in demonstrating what service looks like. And then that goes on to color everything else that happens that night, including the institution of the Lord's Supper and everything else. So I, I want to say... We should not abandon the language of leadership, but we need to redefine it in in Jesus's way of talking about leadership. And that's really hard because as soon as we hear leader, um, we start to think of all the bestseller books that that face you when you walk into Barnes and Noble that talk about how to be the most dynamic person ever and, and how to get people to do what you want them to do. Number two, application of the biblical teaching on this topic is sometimes complex and involves the process of understanding the the text through identifying the intended meaning of the author for the original recipients, identifying the specificity of the teaching in the original context, establishing a universal or timeless principle if possible, and determining a specific contemporary application in light of four components, cultural, personal, circumstantial, and ethical. And, And the point of all that to say is it's complicated. Applying the Bible is complicated, and we often do it inconsistently when we grab just a snippet of a verse and ignore everything else around it. Um, so for instance, I'll just reference the 1 Timothy 2 text that, that's where, where Paul says that he does not permit a woman to, exercise authority, to teach or exercise authority over a man. And, and right before, it talks about women not wearing braided hair. And, and we have to, see at least one brain here. Uh, We we have to work through how to interpret and apply these texts of scripture that isn't cherry picking, but is actually dealing with what's going on in the text. And and that is not to say that um, we, we just abandon everything we've ever thought or the language we've ever used. It's just to say we should pursue deeper study. And if, as we talk about the way that men and women are integrated into our corporate worship. Certain verses are coming to your mind. Uh, Read the whole passage and see what the whole passage says. We'll hit two of those, hopefully, at the end of our time here. Number three, the household or family of God is the pattern not patter, for the church to emulate in which believers are related to one another spiritually as members of the same family. Male-female roles are to be lived out in the context of natural families. So so the point is that God gives us the language of family to talk about the way that men and women relate to each other in the church. And um, sometimes I think we we act as if men and women just should not interact in a church, or there's like this... Large distinction between them, but, but God gives us the language of family members. And that, I think, is what allows for pure and right and appropriate relationships between men and women, is if we start thinking of each other as family members. Four, church leaders should strive to equip families to be worshiping communities that provide a context for the intentional ministries of mentoring and discipleship in the church. Mature men should disciple younger men. Mature women should invest in younger women. They're drawing from Titus 2 there, and and I think that's helpful because it starts to talk about the way that men and women operate in the church less in terms of roles and more in the manner in which they do it as fathers and as mothers in treating each other as sisters and brothers um, and and so on. Single believers like those who are married— are called to live out their male or female identity in their natural family ties and in the local church, the spiritual family of God. Same, same point there. Number six, and, and again, here's where sort of the language of roles predominates, and I, I think that's just what we'll find in all the literature you look at. Um, but it's not bad. I just think it's, it's maybe not as helpful as it appears. Biblical roles and activities of men include worshiper, disciple, Witness, husband, father, leader, provider, and protector. Qualified men may also serve as elder or deacon. Hold on to that because we'll be talking about eldership in in a few moments. Number seven, biblical roles and activities of women include worshiper, disciple, witness, wife, and mother. Qualified women may also serve as deaconess. And that's something that we just hit in our membership seminar. And if you have questions about that, I'm happy to just pass those notes on to you. Number eight, true masculinity and femininity. That's a, I don't know that I can ever say that word right. So I'll just, I'll say it as fast as I can and hopefully it'll sound right. Are grounded in a man's or woman's underlying God-given purpose and roles. We should be careful, and this is the line I'm trying to lean into. We should be careful to avoid stereotypes of masculinity and femininity that owe more to cultural perceptions than to biblical guidelines. And, and I think that's what is the hardest thing to determine. Because the reality is that the scriptures were received within a particular culture, and we live in a particular culture. And so while we don't want to confuse biblical guidelines for cultural preferences, we, we have the added challenge of, of understanding what was you know biblical and what was cultural in, in the biblical text and how that translates into our own culture. We also have to deal with the realities that the New Testament church was not a culture changing on on an empire level organization, but it was on the local organization. That's why in Acts, you know, these guys are accused of turning the world upside down. And so we have these complicated things of, well, what does that mean for the church now? You know, what did that mean 75 years ago when, you know, cultural Christianity shaped our culture? And what about now where it sort of isn't, But, but we can on the local level? So we have a complex level of issues to work through. I want to narrow from this wider perspective, though, to men and women in corporate worship. But before I move on, any questions there? Because um, this is kind of foundational to what we're about to hit. Okay, men and women in corporate worship. I'm not planning to talk about The larger life of the church. Obviously, men and women relate outside of our 1045 a.m. gatherings, but that's what I want to focus on because that's what our class is focusing on. So just as a brief point of review, when the church is talked about in the New Testament, it's talked about as a whole is an organic whole, is the body of Christ, the family of God, a royal priesthood. So as I point out here, Peter calls the church a kingdom of priests, and he doesn't delineate between men and women here. All individuals who are being made new in Jesus are priests of God. They have a royal priesthood. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind as we envision what it means to be the church and what it means to exercise spiritual mutual shepherding as we'll recite in our covenant with one another. As a royal priesthood and holy nation, the church at large then is to participate in proclaiming the praises of God individually but also corporately. And and as we look at this then, the driving message of the New Testament is that the church is one in Christ. So much so that in Galatians, Paul declares that there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you all are one in Christ. And we need to grab onto that language. Um, I, I think that this should impact the way that we worship together. We are one in Christ. We're one body. And as you start to get into the New Testament, you start to see distinctions made, not so much based on gender, but based on gifting. When the body language is talked about in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the distinctions that are made are made based on the gifting that one has received, not so much on the gender. Now, I'm going to back up in a couple moments and, and talk about that because we're not trying to flatten out gender. It's interesting that Uh, in this Galatians text, the wording is there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, and then male and female. And and we can't get into that here, but this is like a big translation debate. And and there's something significant there, I think, that's being communicated, where ethnic identity is essentially abolished, where where master and slave social, social positioning is abolished, Male or female is not it's, it's set up differently, and so there's a distinction that's rema- that, that remains because we take our sexuality with us wherever we go that that doesn't change, um, but the, the emphasis is on unity and oneness in Christ so both men and women then are fundamentally worshipers. And that's an identity that's rooted in our human identity, not our gender identity. So it should be no surprise that when we come together for corporate worship, there's a oneness of our, our participation in this worship. Questions or comments there? Okay, the next category then, men and women, members of the same family. And I alluded to this earlier in the language that's used, so we'll move quickly. But there's a family imagery that carries this forward. Paul makes clear that all Christians are members of God's household. You're members of the family of God. And this is talked about in different ways by different authors, whether it's talking about us as children of God or uh, members of God's household, whatever it might be. This family language pervades what's going on in in what's Interesting here is that in the Greco-Roman household codes, there there's this the the father is set up as the lord of the house of the household, and and everything is under his authority and and leadership. But when Paul in Ephesians in particular sets up this alternative community or describes the features of it, from the very beginning he describes the church as God's household, and and over it over again. God raises up Christ as, as the Lord over his people, head of the church, and um, the, the term for the Greco-Roman household guy, the guy in charge of it was kyrios or Lord. Well, when you get into the instructions for families, it, it reframes it to um, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, not to the Lord Jesus, not to the Greco-Roman Lord construct of the household. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Um, slaves and masters, you relate with this reframing of the Lord as the one who's the head of the household. And, and I think that's significant. I think it reminds us that in the church, um, it's not one individual who's the head, but it's Christ who's the head, and the rest is the body. And, and we all function together as part of that body, though, so of course, different body parts have different functions. In, in the body parts, though, once again, are identified in terms of gifting, not in, not in terms of gender. All right, I, I want to then, um, noting the unity is the fundamental uh, starting point. We also must note that men and women are delightfully different. Men and women are different. Even though we're united as one in Christ, we recognize that unity is really not true unity apart from diversity. It, it, so so if there's simple uniformity, that's sort of like the cheap shadowy version of unity. Unity comes about most fully and thickly when there's diversity and, and when there's distinction. And for a church to have unified corporate worship, we don't get there by flattening everybody out on gifting or gender or anything else, but by emphasizing and leaning into the differences and distinctions. So um, as we think about that, I, we, we have a complicated thing to talk about because it's really hard to talk about gender outside of cultural influences. The expression of gender outside of culture is really, really challenging to nail down. I, I don't know how we nail this down and, and I don't know that we'll ever have an answer Because as we look, even in like my short lifetime, the expression of gender has changed pretty radically. Um, I went to this Christian high school and and, and we were, boys were not allowed to wear pink clothes because that was not a true expression of masculinity. Well, I, you know, we, we tried to buck that a little bit by wearing a pink tie every once in a while or something. Well, if I, if I wore a pink shirt or a floral shirt, I just don't think there's any question that I'm trying to you know, diminish masculinity or something. So that's what I mean when the expression of gender is really challenging to nail down. That's a really small way, but it's also been um, formed just by, the, by economics and industry and everything else. In an agrarian society, men and women are both working hard on the farm. Well, when when the primary way of income is now like going to the office every day, there's a distinction there, and you've got to figure out what, how how do we do this? And there are different ideas and approaches there, and so I I want us to be cautious ag- against uh, creating strict black and white. This is what it means to be masculine, and this is what it means to be feminine. This again is where I think the language of family. And family roles is much more helpful and, and it creates a manner of being rather than a role or responsibility given in connection to gender. So I, I think that talking about doing something in a fatherly way, I, I don't know how to put that in bullet points and say what it means to operate in a fatherly way, but there's something about us that, that responds to that and says, I, I know what that means. Um, same, a motherly way. Or, or as a child, or, or as a brother, or as a sister. It's, it's hard to articulate precisely what that means, but, but it's a direction or orientation that I think we all pick up on. And I think this is where we can say we, we need the Spirit of the Lord to guide us. And, and we have the examples of individuals in the Bible who are talked about in these terms, and that's what we need to lean into. So we shouldn't ignore language like in Romans 16 where um, Paul is commending his fellow workers and he talks about this guy named Rufus and Rufus's mother who's also been a mother to me. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, I can imagine what that means, but, but we don't have a, a strict articulation of it. Um, but I think if we start to talk about it in that way, we start to realize that there's a greater need for integration of men and women uh, rather than a like separation of men and women. So I want to give one illustration of how far afield the framework of role rather than manner really is, okay? So if we consider gender only in terms of roles in places where men can serve in the church and women can serve in the church, one of them that comes up often is nursery and children's church. And uh, very often, We say things like, well, women should be doing nursery and teaching children's church and and working with the kids. Um, It's almost inconceivable that you would have a a man teaching the four-year-old's Bible class. Well, as complementarian as that might sound, it's, it's not. And it's actually, I think, more controlled by a politically liberal framework that doesn't care about fatherhood and actually works to diminish fatherhood and keep fathers out of the lives of kids. And I think that's problematic, but if we start doing these um, role assignments, I think uh, most conservative churches put uh, children's ministry under the feminine uh, role assignment. And in men, you have other more important things to do. And all that does is perpetuate our larger, godless liberal culture approach to children and fatherhood and motherhood. And, and that's where I think we need to recover the family language because we need to talk about fathers and men, relate, whether they're married or single, relating to children in the church in a fatherly way. And, and that means that whenever we have children's church started, that's not going to be something that's handed off to the ladies as if it's something that's unimportant or that only you know, a woman can do. There needs to be fatherly influence there. And that, that's one example that I was thinking of recently that I think goes against the grain, where, where it would get assigned it is like a feminine category and, and it's not masculine to be involved in children's ministry. Well, the exact opposite is, well, it's not the opposite. Both are needed. Both fathers, spiritual fathers, and mothers are needed, which then pushes the emphasis onto manner in which it is done rather than the role that's taken on, um, does does this make sense? Okay, and I think we could start to identify a bunch of other areas that that this is the case, and I think we need to um, try to reevaluate some of these things. So whether it's as important as children's ministry or something as simple as ushering, um, there we don't just need men ushering because we need ushers who usher in a fatherly and motherly way, in in a brotherly and sisterly way, and so we need to. Um, what, whatever categories you might have in your mind. I don't know what categories everyone has in their minds, but as you start to think about everything that happens on a Sunday, I would just encourage you to start to think about how, what would be a fatherly way of doing that, or a motherly way, or a brotherly way, or a sisterly way. And, and as there are needs for those different manners of operating, I think that that evidences the need for integrating both men and women in these ministries. Okay, so very briefly, um, on the office and ministry of elders, as we start to practically say, well, what about what happens on the platform? Our our general um, approach is that that women are encouraged and welcome to participate in in any of those platform ministries that non-elder men are are encouraged to. And so, even though we would, you know, I guess sound a bit backwards to the rest of the world, we believe that the office of elder is limited to men, and and therefore the functions of elders we we don't um, we we have elders do. And so it's not even so much a matter of gender distinction, uh, though that's part of it because of the gender distinction connected to eldership. It's more a matter of qualification and responsibility that's taken on as an individual is appointed to the office of elder. So in our church, the way that that works out in particular is in the pastoral prayer. There's that more lengthy prayer in the service. The reason we don't have women doing that is because we look at that as a, a pastoral function there. There are other times in the service where women will pray. Um, and usually it's a woman, if she's helping with music. one of the music leaders, then, then it's just natural there. But the pastoral prayer, we don't um, have women do because we connect that to this pastoral responsibility. The same thing with the administration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, we, we don't have non-elder men do this and so really it's only the elders who do it as a representation of the church. Now I think there's a good argument to be made that any member could oversee the Lord's Supper because of our our belief in the priesthood of the believer, but in the way that our church polity works, it sort of funnels that piece to to the elders. But then men or women, in 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 our the way we do it, deacons, um, pass the the Lord's Supper elements. But but the Piece that we sort of you only see elder or someone training for eldership or, or or considering that would be administrating the Lord's Supper, and the same would be true with preaching, and with baptism. In um, in there with baptism, of course, we have some category again of the priesthood of believer exception. But when when we look at men and women being involved in in the corporate worship on a Sunday, we say the things that we would not welcome women to do are the things that we'd also not welcome non-elder men to do. Does that make sense? Okay. So I know for some um this is that that pushes your experience a little bit in in what happens whether it's through scripture women reading scripture or praying during a service or being the lead singer or or passing the elements in or something like that uh i know it pushes the categories a little bit but it's it, it's not a move toward liberalism i we think it's just a move towards breaking out of that the two power dynamic ways of looking at things and trying to uh, be as faithful as we can to the scriptures. We're not suggesting that churches that do otherwise are in sin or something like that, um, especially those of you who are coming from Eden, where we came from. You'll notice some of these obvious differences, In and we're not suggesting that they're wrong or, or um, you know, uh, being problematic. We, as we're ju- taking shape as a church, we're just seeing a, a little bit of a distinction there. So I want to, in our last three minutes, just answer one objection that might be raised here. And that is, you know, some might object, doesn't Paul instruct that women should remain silent in the churches? Why, why then would you encourage women to read Scripture or pray or, or anything like that? And what I've commented on already is that we have to take these verses not in a cherry-picking sort of way, but in a holistic way, understanding exactly what is going on there. And, and the, the really hard part is some of these texts come from some of the most debated and complex parts of the Bible. Um, This 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 text is challenging because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul seems to encourage women to pray and prophesy as long as they do so in an appropriate way. But then later in the text in chapter 14, he he says, you know, women don't speak. You need to remain silent. Well, Well, what's going on there? Well, we have to take 1 Corinthians as a whole, and knowing that this is such a divided, schismatic sort of church, it wouldn't be surprising if Paul is talking to one group of women who are, are causing problems, and perhaps a wealthy elite women who might be causing problems, just as the wealthy elites were with the Lord's Supper. Whatever the case is, there, there are, a, a, whatever we come out with in interpreting 11 and 14, we have to say these two, Paul's not contradicting himself. Um, so he has a category for women to be able to pray and prophesy in a formal, recognized way in front of the assembly. And also he can say at least a group of women remain silent in the church. Well, I have an idea of what that means, but we don't have time to get into it or what was going on there. But we have to take those things in stride. In, in addition, we have to look beyond those verses to the larger uh, New Testament writing. So, one example that I think is helpful to point out is that in Romans 16.1, Paul commends Phoebe, who's carrying this letter to the Roman church, and in the common practice was for the letter carrier to read that letter and then to explain it to the church. And, and as I was studying this, I was thinking maybe I am becoming a little bit too like wishy-washy on this. So I looked up a sermon of like the complementarian guy to make sure I'm not getting too edgy here or something. There's this guy, Jim Hamilton, who's professor at Southern Seminary on the council for the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. is a pastor at a church and I listened to his sermon on this text and he noted that he was surprised to look at these practice and to see that Phoebe like read this letter to the church and explained it. And um, he noted that even though he was surprised at this, that this is what happened. And so he just has to imagine that she did it in a way that didn't violate any of Paul's commands to women. And I think that's what we have to say because he's, he's commending this and he orchestrated this. So we have to pair the, the instructions of the apostles with the practices of the apostles and try to reconcile the two. And and I think as we look at the practice of the apostles, it helps us frame the way in which the instructions are to be applied. So I, I draw on Jim Hamilton here just because there's no one on planet earth who doubts that he's a conservative individual. And and uh, just to show it's not me making this up or or me like, you know, going bonkers reading a bunch of liberals or something. I think this is just what happens as we start to deal with these texts and try to navigate the culture that we're in. And um, what, whatever that is going to look like, we, we want to uh, be connecting our practice to the scriptures. I know that there's a lot more that can be said there in no doubt down the road, we'll do a Bible class on this topic. But as it relates to corporate worship, we just want to emphasize that we want to pursue integration into the worship service and um, pursue biblical faithfulness as we go. Let me pray. And if you want to talk afterwards, as always, I'm really happy to do that. Father, thank you for your word. We just recognize that we need humility and grace, that we don't know everything that is going on in these texts, but that we want to worship you and to, to live out obediently before you in our corporate worship. Give us wisdom and discernment as we do so, so that you would be glorified, that your name would be praised, and this church would be strengthened. In Christ we pray.